welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, my name's Micah. If we have not met, I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken. Uh, glad that you're here. Uh, one thing that wasn't mentioned that I want to just highlight, uh, there's a guy, there's a podcast called The Liturgist Podcast, if any of you are familiar with that, um, and there's a guy named Science Mike who's a part of The Liturgist Podcast. These, these characters do this, uh, actually, it's really, really great podcast. They talk about uh, a topic from the angle of, uh, from science and art and faith, essentially. So Science Mike is the guy who does it from art. He talks about art. Come on, everybody. So he's actually going to be in town this week on Wednesday night at First Covenant in St. Paul. And I know there's a couple of people at Awaken who are interested in that. Um, And so if you are interested, find me afterwards and I can get you some more details about that. But that's happening. And uh, yeah, parking. So evidently we we parked somebody into a driveway last week. So um, that's, you know, well, I don't know if we actually parked them into a driveway, but I didn't say that. (laughs) I just got a text message, that's all. So we figured we would remind everybody. Park, park five feet from driveways, okay? Um, all right, gang, so we are in week three of a series called Sequitur uh, in the post-resurrection or post-Easter time in the church calendar, which is also known as Eastertide. And sequitur essentially means this idea of a logical conclusion from the premise or the logical consequence of something. So if you uh, are on your iPad and your parents tell you you're not supposed to be on your iPad, the sequitur, the logical consequence of that is you might get your iPad taken away, right? Right? (laughs) So sequitur, uh, so we're talking about the the logical implications of Easter. If resurrection happened and that that, that was something that we celebrated a couple weeks ago, what are the logical conclusions or consequences of it? What are the implications of Easter? And so last week we talked about this idea of missional, uh, to be missional is, is to be sent by God or to understand that we're sent by God as the church, to be on mission with God in the world. Uh, week one, Jenna talked about being forgiven, that because of the resurrection, because of Easter, we are now a forgiven people sent into the world on behalf of the God who forgives to also forgive uh, insofar as we can when we can. Uh, so this week I want to talk about... Uh, this idea that's actually uh, on this, this canvas over here again, uh, one of the things that we say we value, one of the things that I would hope to be a part of the DNA of Awaken, which is this idea of generosity. Uh, generosity. It's my conviction that one of the consequences or implications of Easter and resurrection is that Christians should be the most generous people that you find in the world. So when you show up to a dinner party and you're not a believer, you don't follow Jesus and you meet a Christian and you get to know them, it ought to be said about this group of people in the world, the church, Jesus' followers, that those are some of the most generous people that I have found, which is what happens at most dinner parties, right, when people meet Christians. That's people's normal and natural response. Christians, man, they are so generous. I love being around them. You know, the world could do well with more of them. All right, all right, so let's talk. Let's talk turkey here. Um, so, no, seriously, I think that Christians should be some of the most generous people that you run into on the planet because of what we know of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. I think that generosity can have uh, life and can be fruitful apart from Jesus, but I think that there's a qualitative difference When someone who follows Jesus lives from a place of generosity, that it is generative and joy-filled and life-giving to the world around them. 
So I want to talk about that today. And I want to talk about the what and why of generosity. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. If you're looking at a black Bible there, it's page 442. And I'll invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. And then we will dive in. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let's pray. That's all we're going to do today. One verse. (laughs) God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the beauty of spring and the birds chirping and the sun shining. Thank you for what it does inside of us, for all of the things that we see bursting forth from the ground after a long winter of waiting. Uh, God, I pray that that would be the case in our lives, that uh, generosity would well up inside of us because of our experience with you and, uh, and of you, and that it would uh, make the world more beautiful. I pray that as we study and as we gather today, that you would speak, uh, that we would have eyes to, to see you and ears to hear you, and uh, I thank you for this day, God, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So I was preparing for this morning, and I was thinking back on my experience as a pastor, and I've experienced a lot of interesting, sometimes weird, beautiful uh, things as a pastor, but I was, I was recalling this one phone call that I got with a person, and this person had never been to uh, the church that I was a pastor at. And uh, we were talking and introducing ourselves, and I had met them, a friend of a friend, and so we connected uh, over the phone. And, and through the course of the conversation, this person felt compelled to tell me that they didn't make a lot of money, but if they did come to visit the church, that they would be sure to tithe. Like in our first conversation, never met the person face-to-face, but felt compelled to talk about that because they were talking to, of course, the right Reverend Micah, the pastor of the church. And so... Uh, I I think that it's fair to say that when you put the ideas of church and religion and money or generosity in the same sentence, things get wonky pretty quickly, amen? And this is maybe some of our experience uh, uh, because, you know, you have conversations like this and and other ones that that would fit that bill. And I don't want to dwell on this too long this morning, but I think if we're honest, church and money in that conversation often gets weird quickly. Uh, and so a lot of times when pastors preach about things like generosity or money, there's this, there's this need or this maybe perceived need to kind of unpack a whole bunch of things and to kind of like back up slowly and then approach the topic very slowly and cautiously so as not to offend anyone and lots of prefaces and lots of unpacking and deconstructing before we can reconstruct anything. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not going to do any of that today. We're just going to go for it. Um, because I think that, um, you know, Sometimes it's worth it, but this morning I just felt like, you know, let's just talk about this as it is, because the Bible talks about it a lot, Jesus talks about it a lot, so we're going to do that. So I want to talk about the what of generosity and the why of generosity. Um, So maybe you could say it uh, first, or maybe you could say it this way, that I think generosity is the sequitur of stewardship. See what I did there? I used the series title in a sentence, friends. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. I was waiting for that all week. Generosity is the sequitur of stewardship. So what do I mean by that? I mean that generosity is the product of something else. When we're asking this question about what is generosity or how would one define it, the thing behind the thing is actually really important. 
if you've ever heard that phrase before, the question behind the question or the thing behind the thing. So we're talking about generosity, but in order to do so, you really, I think, have to go a couple clicks deeper. And you find that generosity is the logical consequence of something else. Generosity is easily confused at times and, and uh, confused with things that it is most definitely not. First and foremost, I would say generosity is not pity. Generosity is not obligation. It's not born out of an, a duty or a uh, guilt or shame. It's not measured in dollars or how much or how big. When we talk about generosity, while it includes money, it's not only money that we're talking about. It's something far deeper than that. It's not a program that the church sets up that you participate in. Rather, I would suggest that generosity is a lifestyle. It's an attitude. It's an assumption that you begin with. I think if you looked it up in the dictionary, it might sort of move towards an act or a moment, something that you do, right? An act of generosity. But I want to suggest that it's deeper than that. Generosity is a, it's a fundamental predisposition from which you see the world. It's an assumption. It's an attitude. And it's the product of something else. Well, that's something else, I would argue, is stewardship. Stewardship, uh, according to the dictionary, I looked it up on dictionary.com, uh, it says that it's the responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. Stewardship, let me say that again. The responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. So generosity is the secret, it's the logical consequence of stewardship. And stewardship... When you're a steward of something, you've been entrusted with something. I remember as, uh, when I was just out of college, I, I was a junior high youth pastor. You know, I'm 21, I just graduated, I just got married, and I got my first job as a youth pastor, and we run this event, you know, some pizza thing where all you, you just buy pizza and soda and kids show up. They teach you this in seminary, actually, in college, how to do a successful youth ministry program. Two elements you must have, pizza and soda. So we do this pizza and soda thing. I don't know what it was, but all these kids come, and these parents, they drop them off and then leave. <laughs> and I remember the first time I did an event, like, on my own, and all these kids are coming, and these parents are like, have fun, guys, and they drive away without their children, and they're with me. And I like to think of myself as a responsible human being, but, like, and then, and then you have the other experience as a parent when you go to drop your child off at the first thing and you drop them off and you're like, do you have any idea what you're doing to the people who are running it? You know, like I'm entrusting my child's life to you. You become a steward of my kid's life. Or I became a steward of all these students too. I was entrusted with something. Stewardship is a big deal. On lots of different levels, we experience this in life, where we're entrusted with something to care for it, to preserve it, protect it, to invest it, something that you've been given. And the biblical idea of generosity is rooted in the fact that we are stewards of something. And of course, the million-dollar question then becomes, what are you stewarding, or what have you been given? What have you been entrusted with? So as we unpack this idea of generosity and we think about it in terms of if we're talking about generosity, it's the product of something else and that something else is stewardship. I want to offer a question that I think is absolutely essential when, if, if you have any interest in thinking about what would it look like to become a more generous person. Here's a question I want to offer for you to think about. Do I own it or did I receive it? Said differently, did I earn it or is it a gift? 
Do I own it or did I receive it? Do I, did I earn that or is it a gift? And I'm not talking about like how did you actually come to possess your car, right? The transaction that took place. We're talking about something far deeper than that. Like how you relate to your stuff is what we're talking about. Do I own it or did I receive it? The boat that you have in your garage, the car that you drove here this morning, do, do you and the bank own it? <laughs> or did you receive it? Is it a gift? The house that you have that you just came from or the apartment that you're in, do you own that? Or is, did you receive it? The golf clubs, the vacation that you went on, the books in your library, the teacup collection. Uh, I was trying to think through, like, how do I make this somewhat more feminine? I don't know what, like, I just know what I have. Like, the tools in my garage, you know? Like, do I own those things or are they, did I receive them? Maybe somebody could come up to me afterwards and give me some good, some good female illustrations for the second hour. Did you earn those things? Did you earn the money to buy them or are they a gift? See, this question I think puts right in front of us our disposition towards our things. How we relate to the things in our life, the resources or the possessions that we have in our hands or in our, in our care. Generosity is the sequitur of stewardship. And stewardship says, I own nothing. But rather, I've been entrusted with something. In the psalm that we read, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The Bible makes the claim that God owns it all. So stewardship, what is it? Well, it begins with this, this assumption that God owns everything. I want to suggest that we live in a culture and there is an ideology that's sort of uh, the, 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 the de facto when we wake up and we interact with the world that ownership is a big deal and it's something that is the highest goal, it's the worthiest pursuit. When you can buy it for yourself, you've arrived somewhere, right? You can stand on your own two feet. Now, I don't need my parents or I don't need somebody else to help me. I bought that on my own. I earned that. And this is the, this is the sort of general direction and flow of the world that we live in. And the scriptures, I think, are going in a counterintuitive direction. It's saying, no, actually, God owns it all. Why is it that everybody on our block has a snowblower and a lawnmower and two cars? Do you ever think about that? Like, could we, could we share those things? I mean, Minnesota, there's a lot of snow, but that much? Where we all need a snowblower and we all need a lawnmower? Like, what if two or three neighbors got together and said, hey, how about you buy the snowblower, you buy the lawnmower, and you buy whatever else? And then, now, one could argue that, you know, modern life in 2016 or just convenience would... would play into those conversations, but I want to I argue that something else in us wants to be able to say mine, right? That's mine. I bought that. I earned that. That's mine. There's something, something happens in us when we're able to say that, but I think the scriptures is telling a little bit of a, a different narrative, a different story where the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So stewardship begins with the realization that, in fact, God owns it all, and it all comes from the hand of God. God is the source and can claim rightly, not me. Not only that, but what I have, so if it's all, God, if, if, if God owns it all, but what I have, what's in my possession, is actually, it's a gift. It's a gift that's been given to me. I don't think I have to work very hard to convince you of the, 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 the sense of entitlement that we live with in our, in our lives, if you have teenagers or you're near them, um, 
you get a real close look at what this is, you know, this entitlement, like, I deserve that. Oh, why can't I have that? Everybody else has it, so I should get it. And maybe that actually could translate to different ages as well. But actually, stewardship recognizes that it's all a gift. The breath you just took, it's a gift. The fact that you can hear what I'm saying to you, it's a gift. The fact that I can like put words together in a sentence and have meaningful relationship with another human being, not all life forms on planet Earth can do that. That's a gift. The fact that you were able to get yourself here today, most of you walked in the room. That's a gift. The fact that your hands work and you can do something to provide a service or a good that's of value so, so much so that you get paid for it, they call those jobs. That's a gift. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce. It's not entitled. It's a gift. The fact that you can add value to the world and get paid to do it, that's gift. Stewardship recognizes that it's all God's and that what I have is a gift. And then the kicker that my resources, my assets, what I have in my possession are, are to be leveraged and invested for the mission of God in the world, what we talked about last week, that we would build the kingdom with the things that we have. I mean, how many stories does Jesus tell about a landowner or someone who has something and he entrusts that something to somebody and expects them to use it well? So generosity is an attitude. It's a place from which we live, and it's an assumption that we begin with, and it's, and it's the natural overflow of this idea that we are stewards, that it's all somebody else's, and what I have has actually been given to me as a gift to be invested in the world for the purpose of love and hope and reconciliation and hospitality and all of the things that God is about. So that's what. What is generosity? It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a disposition. It's an attitude. It's a place from which we begin. It's a preset that either you have or you don't. And the opposite of, of generosity is scarcity, by the way. If you live from a place of generosity, there's abundance. There's enough to go around. But if you don't, you live from a place of scarcity where you got to get yours while you can. See, this is far deeper than just resources and possessions. It actually is connected to your, your fundamental understanding of the universe, and the very nature of God. Is God abundant and is there enough? Or are we kind of on our own and we got to get what we can while we can? This is a far deeper conversation than just how much money do you give away. So generosity is this attitude, it's a disposition that I, I, I begin with the assumption that there is enough and that there is a God who is faithful and cares for and is benevolent and good. So, what? Now the why, as we, as we, in the time I have left, why? Why should Christians be the most generous people in the world? Why should I, as your pastor, exhort you to move towards generosity and stewardship? Why am I encouraging you to do this? A couple of things. One, I would suggest that generosity and, and living from a place of generosity legitimates the gospel. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody talk about, like, uh, you know, the good news of Jesus isn't actually good news sometimes when Christians show up and announce it. That the gospel, what should be good news, isn't necessarily good news when the church announces it. 
I've heard that critique from many people before. Living from a place of generosity, if Christians show up in the world and what is produced is generous lives, it legitimates the claims of the gospel. The Bible claims that what we see in Jesus is the benevolent love and generosity of God for all of the world. And so if we show up and that's not the case, but rather we're stingy and white-knuckling it with all of our stuff through the world, we make God to be a liar. So what's on the line? Not just is the church going to get funded or is something, some mission going to get funded, but the very claim of God that God's benevolence and generosity is on display in Jesus is at stake when we show up in the world. And when we don't live from a place of generosity with the understanding of stewardship, we actually are counterbalancing or giving a counterargument to the good news of the gospel. That's a big deal. There's a lot on the line. So it legitimates the claims of the gospel and the good news. I got an email this last week, and it reads this. Good afternoon, Pastor Micah. My name is Danny Friedman Block, and I am the dance specialist at Linwood Monroe Arts Plus. I would like to thank you for reaching out and partnering with us at LMAP. With your generosity, I was able to purchase new tap shoes and dance clothes for my students. And I would like to invite you to our dance gathering on Friday, May 6th at 3 p.m. Again, thank you so much, and I hope to see you at the gathering. Do you guys remember the Christmas concert that you paid money for, and you came and you sat and you received, you consumed this beautiful music? Something happened that night, and people, out of their own pockets and generosity, gave for art that was produced, and that money was then sent over to Linwood, and a group of kids who weren't able to get shoes for whatever programs they were in were now able to. Generosity legitimates the good news of Jesus in the world, people. If we don't do this, if we don't live from this place, we're constantly negating the claim that God makes. But when we do, what happens is the good news of Jesus makes sense to people. There's no incongruity between what we're saying and what we're doing. Amen? So who wants to go to a dance concert on Friday, May 6th, 3 o'clock, Linwood Monroe? I think it would be just a kick in the pants if like 50 awakened people showed up to this dance party. If you're like, I love those shoes, man, those are tight. <laughs> May 6th, 3 p.m., get your pens out, get your phones out, write it down, get off of work. Show up, Linwood Monroe, it's a block away, all right? It legitimates the gospel. I think it also exercises our faith. I wrote, I read, the, I wrote this book. <laughs> I wrote this book in my spare time. I read this book in my spare time. I was, uh, I was thinking about planting this church. And so I went on this four-day retreat by myself in a cab, and I hold myself up, and I said to God, if you, you have four days, speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> God did, and here we are. But I sat in this, this room and I read this book uh, by a guy named Don Miller. It's called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in it, he asked the question, what kind of story do you want your life to be about? So when you think about your own life, what kind of story do you want it to be? 20, 30, 40 years from now, when you're on your deathbed and people are gathered around you, what are the kinds of things you want them to say about you? 
So he uses the idea of story, a protagonist and an antagonist, and a climax and a crisis and the hero's journey and all the wonderful things of literature. And then he has this one phrase that he uses. It's called an inciting incident. And he says, the inciting incident is the, is the doorway through which the protagonist can never return. You've all been there before, right? Where like, if I do this thing, everything changes. Nothing remains the same. You can never go back. You know, you've crossed the Rubicon. You've heard that phrase. So the inciting incident creates the atmosphere in which the kind of character you want to be can grow. The inciting incident creates an atmosphere where we can become the kinds of people that we want to be. When I, when I get old and I'm laying on my deathbed, God willing, I have that many years, and people are gathered around me, what I hope that they say is Micah was generous with his life. He wasn't stingy. He didn't hold his stuff so tightly, but rather he held it loosely and gave to anyone who had need. That's the kind of story I want my life to be about. So committing to generosity now is an inciting incident that forces you to live into the kind of character you want to be. Without those inciting incidents and those kinds of moments, we never become the kinds of people we want to be. So it forces us to exercise faith. When you live with generosity and you're not hoarding it all and holding on to it so tightly, you have to actually trust that God is good. You have to trust that there's enough. You have to trust that God is abundant and benevolent in character and nature and not stingy and holding out on you. This is the question of Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? So committing to live from a place of generosity, it forces you to exercise the faith that you say, maybe, you want to have and forces you to become the kind of person that you want to be. I think that's the good stuff. And as your pastor, I would encourage you to move in that direction. I would also just say, finally, it's a better way to live. It's generosity is a better way to be human. What if there's like a flow out there of like the best possible way to be a human being on the planet? And that generosity actually produces more life and more love and more joy and it generates something in the world. If that's true, then this is one of the things Jesus does, not only to die on the cross and uh, address what's wrong or what's broken, but also to model, this is what it looks like to be human. And so Jesus himself says, it's better to give than receive, does he not? So even if you're not a Jesus, if you're not buying all the Jesus stuff, I would suggest every wisdom tradition in the world says that generosity is a better way to be human. So even if you don't buy the Jesus stuff, I would just say, be more generous because it's better for the world. And I would argue that it's actually in line with what Jesus is about and the kingdom is all about. So just move in that direction, even if you're, you're not sure about the Jesus stuff yet. And I would invite you to prove me wrong. Here's a challenge. I suggest that committing to a life of generosity and recognizing that it's all in fact a gift and that your job is to invest it and give it away that this is a better way to be human, and I would just suggest or invite you to prove me wrong. To tell me that if you live this way where you're, you're holding things loosely and being generative and generous, that it doesn't produce more joy and more life for you and those around you. Prove me wrong. Prove Jesus wrong. Prove the scriptures wrong. Prove the wisdom traditions of the world wrong. Scarcity and selfishness is a zero-sum game. Nobody wins when you do it. So, here's my closer. 
Here's my invitation to you. Generosity, it's not a program. It's not something that you like sign up for and check off. It's not, it's not motivated by duty or obligation or guilt or shame, but rather it's this place that you see the world from. It's a lens through which you see God and yourself and the world that you live in. It's rooted in the deepest realities of the universe. When the, when the early Christians were trying to figure out how to talk about God, they put this Greek word together. It's called perichoresis. Peri means circle, and choresis is where we get the word choreography. So at the very like, base level of who is God, they said it's a circle dance. This generative dance between Father, Son, and Spirit that's always giving, always receiving, always giving, always receiving. So at the very fundamental, basic, elemental level of the universe, this is God. At the ground of being, there is a generous circle dance. And you, as a human, were actually formed and crafted in the image of this God. And therefore, to, be, to live from scarcity and selfishness is to be less human. I mean, if that's not a good argument, then I don't know what is to, to give this a go. Do you want to be a better human being in the world? Do you want to live more like you were intended to live? Ge the scriptures would argue that generosity is a good place to start. So here's my invitation to you today to consider two things. One, what does it mean to commit to the idea of stewardship? If you're a follower of Jesus, to really live from a place where you begin with the assumption that God owns it all, it's a gift that I've been given, and I'm to invest it in the world for the sake of love and hope and forgiveness. To commit to living from a stewardship position in reference to the things that are in your hands. Your money, your possessions, your house, your cars. These are all things that can be leveraged for the good of the, of the gospel and the kingdom in the world. So what changes for you if you commit to living from that place? What shifts? What moves? That'd be a good thing to think about this week in your own space where you're quiet and you're thinking. Like, if I say yes to stewardship, what changes? Second, what's one commitment you can make to be more generous? What's one thing that you can do to move towards generosity? Maybe it's with your time, Maybe it's with a resource that you have, a house that you live in, or a car that you drive, or I know the story of this guitar. The guitar that you were just led in worship and will be led with in worship again by was a gift. It was a total gift to Stefan. A group of people got together and gave it to him. I used a, a guitar that was given to me for the first 12 years of youth ministry. Can you take something that is yours, that's in your hands, and leverage it for the good of the gospel? Simple question. One thing you can do to move towards generosity. One commitment you might make. So I'm going to close with a word of prayer. I'm going to invite you to a time of silence. And then a time of response and singing. Uh, so here's what will happen in the next few moments. Uh, I'll lead you into this time of silence. I'd invite you to, to, to hear and listen to what God might be saying and doing. Maybe even write some of those things down. Uh, Stefan and Justin will lead us in song. During that time, you're invited to sing with them, to continue to be silent, to use the kneelers if you'd like, if you want to pray. The prayer team is available to really process and think, respond to these questions. What, what, would, it, what would it mean to commit to living from a place of stewardship? And what's one thing I can do to move towards generosity. So pray with me if you will. God, this morning, as we gather in this place, 
I pray that your spirit would speak in ways that we hear and can respond. I pray, God, that if there are some here today who have maybe unknowingly or uh, have lived with a tight grip around the things in their life, I pray that you would come gently and invite to loosen that grip, to hold those things looser, to offer them back to you as an act of worship. Thank you for the gifts, these resources, these things, and clarity around how they might invest them for the good of the gospel and the kingdom in the world. God, as a church, would you continue to move us, invite us towards being generous, where our hands are always open, our doors are always open to what you would have and what you're inviting us to give away. Receive this benediction. This is as good as it gets, right? Scripture, the people singing, you all. That's good, that's good. May you come to see that God, in essence, is generous. That you were formed in the image of this God. May you see that all that is in your possession as an opportunity to say yes to God's invitation and God's mission. And may you be found faithful. May we be found faithful with all that we have been entrusted with. And may it bear fruit, generate life and hope and love in a world that needs it. Amen. Grace and peace. Go build the kingdom. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.